I'm Russ Boris, and this is A Track. Gail Ann Dorsey is a world-class musician who famously played bass in David Bowie's band for 20 years. Her credits also include several solo albums and work with Tears for Fears, Indigo Girls, Lenny Kravitz, The National, and many more. Gail also has a longtime love of radio, but what I didn't know was the role that film plays in her story. So this A-Track is all about songs as soundtracks to movies and to life. Happy to welcome Gail Ann Dorsey to the show. Hello. Hi, Russ. Hello. Happy to be here. I'm so, so excited. Uh, great to have you, Gail. You know, I'm a big radio fan. so. <laughs> oh, yeah. And we will get into that for sure. But your work today is as DJ. So we have eight songs and one guest. And I'm very curious about how we arrived at this particular theme. So uh, what you wanted to talk about and what you wanted to play today were songs that were all Academy Award winners or songs that had been nominated, but you thought should have won. That's correct. Well, I was a big film lover, uh, as well as music at, at a period in my life, especially sort of in my early teens and, and until I went to college, where I actually went to film school at California Institute of the Arts. And I was more interested in screenwriting, so I really kind of was into stories. And, and, and I think I realized, you know, when trying to decide what theme I would use for this eight-track session, I realized that um, how much of an effect that songs that were in films had had on me as a musician. Like some of my favorite songs were things that came from movies, and um, and just kind of the power that image and songs can kind of come together and create like this kind of indelible association, basically. And I just thought I started thinking about that, and I thought, wow, it's quite fascinating that. That, that was something that was a really big part of my growing up and my musical education. All right, your first choice is this song from Keith Carradine, so tell me about this one. Well, I always loved Robert Altman films. I felt like he was the... Um, he, he was the filmmaker that was making films that were like reality TV before that existed. <laughs> it's not my way to love you just when no one's looking. The character-driven uh, stories that he had that were kind of just like you were really spying in on real life. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't so much structured like other films. And this particular film, Nashville, which had to do with music in general, and, ha- and I think had a whole bunch of songs. I found my, my old vinyl copy of it. <laughs> nice. And it has so many great songs. I, and to me, any of them could have been a, an Academy Award winner. But this song in particular did win the Academy Award in 19, I'm checking, 75. I never cared too much for games, and this one's driving me insane. You're not half as free to wander at. It was the song that was the sort of love song of the film, and also being a big Lily Tomlin fan at the time as well. The song was kind of written around her character and her particular relationship with this country sort of singer, this kind of hippie country guy uh, in in the film, and she was a more sort of straight-laced person. And and I just thought the, the song was so sentimental and romantic. I can't put bars on my insides My love is something I can't hide It still hurts when I recall the times I've tried You know, at 75, I was, what, 12 or 13 or something. So to me, it was just such a romantic song. So that was one of my first choices. I just thought it was a classic song that really should have won an Academy Award. Because I'm easy 
Keith Carradine and I'm Easy here on 8-Track. Gail Ann Dorsey is our guest today. I mean, Gail, you talked so much about how films and music are so incredibly linked. Um, have you ever watched a film, you know, as a musician, have you ever seen a scene and thought, you know, I know a song that would go just perfect right there? Uh, yes, I have, actually. I can't think of one right now, but I definitely have. You know, I'm always sort of thinking. So sometimes I'm hearing a song and I'm imagining like the other way around, sort of seeing it. I'm like, I hear a song and, and then I see the scene in my head, you know, like what it could be in a film. Sometimes that's, it goes the other way around. But definitely I've done that before. Do you think at times the song can make you enjoy the movie more or the movie can make you enjoy the song more? That's a good question. Um, <clears throat> I think the song can make you enjoy the movie more. <laughs> okay. If it's just the right song, you know, that goes with the scene or what, what, just the theme of the film and it just hits at the right moment and the film has already got you in this mood, like the song will just elevate that film. Because that's what a lot of these songs are. They remind me of watching the film they, and the song, you know, has made the film a better film in my mind to think of the relationship between the two. All right. So your, your next pick is Noel Harrison and the windmills of your mind. What connects you to this song? The whole like French kind of chanson, I think it's called the way that that song is really like a windmill. I mean, it, it winds round and round and round. On a never spinning reel, like a snowball down a mountain or a carnival balloon. Like a carousel that's turning, running rings around the moon. The lyrics as well are just genius in that to me. I think it's Alan and Marilyn Bergman, the famous lyricists. But Michelle Legrand just was one of my favorite composers as a kid. I liked it. I think he did The Summer of 42 and all those romantic kind of French, you know, orchestrations. It's, and it's a very particular way that song is structured that does come from a type of songwriting. In fact, David Bowie used that very same thing in uh, Life on Mars. Like a clock whose hands are sweeping past the minutes of its face And the world is like an apple whirling silently in space It's kind of this kind of revolving uh, way of I don't have uh, music training, so I don't know what they call it exactly, but it's definitely a formula of writing. And that film in particular, again, I have my original vinyl there of it. It's so great. And of course, the most famous scene, the chess scene, you know, of, of Faye Dunaway and and, uh, <laughs> and Steve McQueen with the chess game and the whole thing was just so erotic and exciting for a young kid. I was like, wow. So romantic, and it's just such a great story. And I don't—I've never liked any of the remakes. I have to say, I think the original is just a stunning film. So the music, not only the song "Windmills of Your Mind," but the entire score of that film is just one of my favorite albums of all time. I listen to it on a very regular basis. As the images unwind, like the circles that you find in the windmills of your mind. Another favorite film song from our guest, Gail Ann Dorsey. I was bruised and battered, I couldn't tell what I felt. I was unrecognizable to myself. I saw my reflection in a window and didn't know my own face. Oh, brother, you're gonna leave me wasting away on the street. 
streets of Philadelphia. Bruce Springsteen and Streets of Philadelphia. Gail, if you can get through that song without tearing up, you're better than me. I know. It was a hard one. It was a hard one. Boy, talk about a song that does bring you back to a film, a time, a period. And no one can do that kind of narration in a way like Springsteen. I walk the avenue till my legs feel like stone. I heard the voices of friends vanished and gone. When he makes a song in that, that zone, that sort of mellow, but just telling such a beautiful story, make the images so clear, the emotion that he touches, just stunning. And there's no question why that was the winner of the Academy Award in 93, I believe. I've long contested that Soft Bruce is best Bruce. So oh, I think me that, too. Like I'm on fire. All the, I love, yeah, I, I do like all that. You know, I, li- I do like to, a little bit of 10th Avenue freeze out every now and then. But, oh, sure. But the, uh, yeah, the mellow Bruce that's just telling it like it is. There's nothing like that. Ain't no angel gonna greet me. It's just you and I, my friend. And my clothes don't fit me no more. And every line in this one is just you're just buying the character. Yeah. You know, you're just a hundred percent there. Absolutely. And that's that's just such great songwriting. And I'm sure obviously he wrote that for the film, so it wasn't kind of a song that already existed or anything. I have um, another story. I, I'm I'm from Philadelphia as well, it's my hometown. And um, I actually uh, live up in the Woodstock area now. And for many years, when I first moved here, um, the screenwriter of Philadelphia, Ron Nicewiner, lived here. And I actually won the original screenplay of that film in an auction that Ron signed for me. He's still a very good friend, but this is a precious piece because he, you know, a lot of screenplays you can buy if you're into screenwriting, you can find screenplays, you can download them, you can, you know, used to buy them back in the day anyway, but he, he never put this up for sale. So this, this is, this is a very precious copy that I have here. That is so, beautiful. So the film, yeah, and then the film and just the whole thing is um, one of the reasons I chose that song. Gail Ann Dorsey is our guest today on 8-Track, and the choices are all songs that had to uh, had associations, uh, whether they won an Academy Award or they were nominated and should have won in Gail's eyes. So, Gail, what was really first, though, for you? I mean, obviously, you've spent the bulk of your career as a musician. Was music the love first? Was film the love first? Music was the love first. It was totally music. And I think through music was how I kind of you know, discovering those kind of songs that were coming out of films. I watched a lot of TV as a kid. I think most kids did in the 70s. I don't know. I did anyway. I love TV. Um, I don't hardly watch it at all now, but I think I got a lot of emotion from films and and sort of just, I was a kid that was quite um, kept to myself a lot. So I kind of lived in that fantasy world of movies and things like that. So, you know, I watched a lot of films and imagined being a part of that or imagine what that life would be like, which would, would led me to wanting to write stories, to write screenplays myself and make up stories and, and create my own characters and things like that. So I think it's just my the nature of my childhood imagination that got me deeper and deeper into wanting to 
be involved with film or make films. But the music was always first, was the first thing that I ever understood in the world. <laughs> Still the almost the only thing I understand in the world at this point. Do you, do you remember the first record you bought? Uh, the first record I bought was Slade. Um, the British band Slade, that was, um, was S-L-A-D-E, I think how they spelled it. And the, and the album was called Slade with a Y is how they spelled it. And I remember this, the cover. I'm sure I have it back here in my collection. They had like Slade written on the, on the hand. It was like the cover of the record. I used to see them on the Midnight Special. That's something I, I thought they were really cool. Naughty Holder, I think, was the guy. It was kind of glam, like kind of Bowie-esque kind of thing. That was the first record I bought. But the first record was given to me was the very first Partridge Family album, which was, that's that's a genius record. We were in the <laughs> 70s. You didn't have any choice. That's standard issue. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah, because yeah, they came out when I was like, you know, 70, 71 was the Partridge Family. So I was eight or nine years old. 19, I was born in 62. So um, Partridge Family was uh, the first record that, that someone gave me that was like my first record that wasn't my brother or sister's hand-me-downs. I'm the youngest of five, so I got all the hand-me-downs. And then um, the first record I bought was Slade. I don't know why. I don't Thinking of that now, I'm like, I'm sure I could have thought of something else to buy, but I obviously liked it at the time. <laughs> oh, the first one is the first one. You know, you don't yeah, have to make any oh, apologies. Gosh, yeah, no, I, I, still, I still like it. I still listen to it. All right, I'm going to set up the next song, and I'm just going to say one word, and you can, you know, run uh, with it. I can't it. remember what's next. Okay. I'm just going to say Alfie. <sighs> what's it all about, Alfie? The most perfect, best pop song ever written, in my opinion. I'm serious. What's it all about? It's Bacharach, of course, at his very, very best. Bacharach and Hal David, to me, at their best. I don't know what to say about that song other than in my mind it's perfect. Like in terms of craftsmanship of a song when you start like learning about songwriting and things like that. The film was, um, you know, a little bit, I think at the time, a little bit above my head and it was kind of like weird because it was English and it was it was kind of weird. But that song, uh, especially the Dionne Warwick version, which they, I think, used to play a little bit more on the radio. I don't know why I associate her with it more than Cilla Black, who did the original. But that song is one that I actually perform a lot in my solo work and just, just on guitar. I had someone teach me how to play it once on guitar. It's short, it's simple, but it has every element that a really, really good song requires. Obviously in a sort of, I won't say old fashioned, but in a classic sense, because obviously there's so many other ways of writing songs. I'm not a snob about that, but I just find that song just so beautifully crafted. To me, it's like a gem, it's, it's a perfect diamond. From Alfie to Working Girl, this is 8-Track. Jerusalem. 
Carly Simon, Let the River Run. All right, now if that song doesn't make you want to get on your commuting sneakers <laughs> and it. just take on the world, I don't know what will. That's exactly why I chose that song in some ways. It immediately gives you, because it starts the film out. A lot of times the soundtrack song is at the end or it's maybe somewhere in the middle of the movie. But that was, I was a huge Sigourney Weaver fan and um, just that whole era of like the corporate world and, you know, women in the workforce. You know, it's kind of a new kind of feminist era sort of emerging at that time, a different kind of take on it anyway. And, and that whole image of the working girl, you know, getting on the ferry or wherever they could be in the, in the world, not even just in Staten Island, but with their sneakers and going into the office and then putting on the high heel. That whole song, like, really immediately conjures those images. It, it sounds like it's it's almost a musical piece. You know, it sounds like something that should be on Broadway. Yeah, exactly. You know, when you think about songs, I think, that do work with images or, or writing for a story like Philadelphia uh, or even Alfie, I just realized, listening to it again, it's like, also, it's the message of that song is absolutely brilliant. It's such a beautiful human message about love and about the way we, we see ourselves and see the world and relate to the world. But Working Girl was, it's like, it's the perfect kind of, you know, putting on the sneakers, getting on the train, kind of going into battle. Like, you know, like it's a sort of great uplifting song to kind of get your armor on and kind of get the day going. I just thought, what a perfect, perfect uh, sentiment. Best song uh, in 1988. Carly's delivery of that, and I'm a huge Carly Simon fan. She's done some great soundtracks, you know, Spy Who Loved Me, I almost chose that one. And I got to do a few years ago, uh, well, quite a few years ago now, I think, I got to do a, a corporate show with Carly Simon, and then we got to do that song, so I was very excited. Excellent. Got to sing it. <laughs> Gail Ann Dorsey is our guest. This is 8-Track. Gail's choices today are all songs that were featured as Academy Award winners or ones that should be. And we'll get a twist on in a little bit as well. Now, again, we talked a lot about film. We talked a lot about music, but uh, another medium is radio, which kind of started a lot of it for you, right? Your, oh, your love of radio as, as a child. Absolutely. I mean, that's my that's my first first time I heard music, really. I think, you know, I know my siblings were playing music around the house, but I feel like sort of finding my own uh, sound, things that really appealed to me that, that weren't hand-me-down records or whatever my sister or brother were listening to was listening to the radio. My mother always had a radio on in the house all the time until, you know, till she died basically, which was a few years ago, but till she was like 90 years old, she always, she had a little transistor radio that she would carry from room to room and she was always listening to the radio. And so I, I have this memory of getting ready for elementary school in the morning, getting ready for school and going in the kitchen and having my cream of wheat or whatever she had made me for breakfast and that radio playing. Um, just behind me on that counter, I can see it now. And hearing the AM, pretty much AM radio in Philadelphia, WIP. And, you know, you were hearing The Carpenters and you were hearing Helen Reddy and Olivia Newton-John, all the things that are actually my favorite music to this day. I mean, people, I've played with so many different artists and different genres, so people sometimes assume that that's like 
that's my thing, but it's all my thing. But my favorite thing has always been that music from uh, you know, the early 70s, um, especially singers, singer-songwriters of that day. It's amazing how that stuff just gets into, you know, the, the fabric of your being and it just kind of, it, it takes hold. Absolutely, absolutely. And it was just such beautiful melodies and things. I think why I keep gravitating towards that music and what I sometimes miss in modern music is the variety of things that, that people seem to use in terms of just musical textures and arrangements and melodies and things that were just so so rich and captivating and kind of three-dimensional and, 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 you know, kind of wrapped around you. And I feel like a lot of things now are very sort of flat and one-dimensional. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if it's, it's just because of the digital world or the way people make records these days, which is also kind of, you know, like, like everything we do on the screens and things. But there was definitely a more organicness to the music at that time, which is, is still in my bones. I think there are many, many dimensions to this next pick. And I'll set this one up (laughs) in a similar way. Let's just say the word shaft. (laughs) Yep. Shut your mouth, right? Well, that is, that's like, that's the side, that's the soul stuff I liked, which I love the, the, the R&B and soul stuff that was kind of involved in those, well, it wasn't a black exploitation film. I I wouldn't think of shaft as that kind of film, but sort of black films that were being made and the black writers like Curtis Mayfield for Superfly and, and, and uh, Isaac Hayes for Shaft. Isaac Hayes was the first concert I ever saw, ever. Nice. Uh, my brothers and sisters took me. I was nine years old. I saw Hot Buttered Soul, the Philadelphia Spectrum, which no longer exists. So I was a big, I was an Isaac Hayes fan. I liked that music. I liked that a lot of the R&B uh, writers and soul artists of that time used, especially coming from Philly, you know, with the, the Philly sound, they used orchestras and they used orchestration and it was very dramatic and it wasn't just bass and drums and he was creating a, his own sort of, I guess you'd call it like an R&B symphony. Who's the cat that won't come out when there's danger all about? I wasn't crazy about the movie itself, but I loved the music. I have to say, that was one where I really, I really loved the music. He's a complicated man, but no one understands him but his woman. From Harlem to Oz, it's a track. over the rainbow, I heard of once in a lullaby. Judy Garland, of course, somewhere over the rainbow. Gail, all right, first time you saw Wizard of Oz, is that a happy memory or was that terrifying as a child? I think it, it, it depends. A little bit of both, but a happy mm-hmm. memory. One of my favorite films of all time. I think one of the most creative and imaginative and beautifully filmed and performed films I've ever seen to this day. Someday I'll wish upon a star and wake up where the clouds are far behind me. Where troubles melt like lemon drops away above the chimney tops. That's where you find me. It is a classic, as we already know. But that song as well was just so... Uh, it's kind of like Alfie. It just has that sort of 
sentimental, hopeful, where could we go, who can we be, what's possible kind of thing. Um, you know, there are many versions of that now that were more, they were a little more moody than that in a sense, because that still has all the sparkle of the film in that arrangement and version of it. But it's just a song that I love. Another one I like singing sometimes once in a while. I do it when I do a solo show. I, I really wanted to pick one song that was just from a different era that was a real classic that to me sets the standard for what Academy Award winning songs should be. And, and we haven't even obviously spanned a huge, you know, a lot of different decades that I've skipped over. But that song to me is like the, the gold standard of film songs that go to a movie, that accompany a film, and that brings those two things together in just the most perfect, harmonious way. If happy little bluebirds fly beyond the rainbow, why, oh, why can't I? And if you have, you know, the experience of being in the theater and experiencing Indeed. it in that way, yeah. you know, you're, you're talking about, you know, how you can sing it in a certain way. And of course, as a working musician, as a touring musician, you're, you're in such a weird place right now. You know, you're not you're not doing yeah. what you would normally do. That's true. Uh, so you're faced to, to kind of find new ways to connect to your audience. So, like, what are you doing to keep your sanity these days and keep your livelihood going? Uh, well, I'm actually, you know, I've just started one of these Patreon campaigns, which is a, kind of a subscriber service for artists. And um, so, uh, you know, I, I invite people to subscribe to kind of help me kind of keep the groceries coming <laughs> at least that I mean there's been a few little odd jobs coming but it's been difficult I have to say and and on Patreon I'm just kind of offering I'm actually offering a cover song every month that people I I, I name an artist and I have the, the subscribers vote on what song they might like to hear me cover by their artist and then I do my own version of that um, so I'm doing stuff like that and, and offering, there's a newsletter. I'm doing a bass hang for people who are bass-centric or interested in bass or, or just interested in music anyway. So there's a monthly uh, live stream that I'm doing, which is kind of, I call it a bass hang because, again, I'm not a schooled musician. I play by ear. I'm, I'm self-taught. So I don't know how to do theory and those sort of things. There's plenty of stuff on YouTube for that. But I'm offering just a more of a philosophical approach and a, a very much so a, a learning of listening, kind of critical listening when it comes to being a bass player because it's I find it's usually an instrument that people, people who take it up um, maybe don't realize how powerful that instrument is in terms of how where it sits and where it belongs in an ensemble and what to do with, with it and also just how to listen. You know, sometimes you, you, we learn a lot about playing, but, but listening is also as big a part of being a, a good musician as being able to get your chops together. So it's more of a kind of, of a hang. I know it's probably impossible to narrow this down to, to one particular thing, but as you're, you know, trying to keep active, you know, in this way, mm -hmm. you know, and not performing live, what's the hardest part about not doing the road thing, not being out there, not being in front of fans or being in front of, you know, being with a band? Is there one particular hardest part right now? The hardest part for me is that um, ever since I can remember being able to perform, whether it was even in the high school play or whatever it would have been, or getting on stage with singing or playing, 
It's my meditation. It's the time I feel most comfortable in the world. That two hours or 50 minutes or 20 minutes, however long I'm on that stage, as soon as the music starts, whether I'm alone or with a band, whether there's five people or 5,000 people, it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm free. And so I'm feeling a little crazy. I have to admit it, like, because I don't have that outlet to just to be calm. And then there's everything else to worry about at the same time. <laughs> so it's been difficult. It's been really difficult. So, you know, doing Patreon and things like that are just, it's, it's helping me to bring my focus, just stay focused on the music, stay focused on creating things. Obviously that's a whole new medium for me and all this streaming and stuff is very new to me, but I'm getting a, a, the hang of it. And I'm trying to find a way to let that kind of fuel me until I can get back on stage because I, that's, that's where I, I feel like I belong, like to the world, like I have something to offer. This is my purpose. So it's been, it's been difficult. Well, Gail, thank you so much for giving us your time today on 8-Track. This has been a real treat. Yeah, my pleasure. I've so enjoyed it. (laughs) I really have. All right. Now, there is a twist to this last song uh, Mm -hmm. that you have chosen. Yeah. Uh, So give us a little background as why this one fits into the theme. Well, I chose one song that um, when I went to film school to California Institute of the Arts, I had written a screenplay when I was younger. That's coming apart. This is my own screenplay, <laughs> or a copy of it anyway. I wrote a screenplay. I don't know if anyone can see it. It was called Brianna the Shattered Woman, right? And it was like this this film about, it was a full-length screenplay. It's like, I don't know, 185 pages on my typewriter, on my Olivetti typewriter. This is a photocopy. Um, at the time, I was into films like An Unmarried Woman, I guess, well, Kramer versus Kramer was kind of later, but that those kind of relationship movies where, you know, even a lot of Woody Allen films as well. I was a huge Woody Allen f- fan. And so I was writing this story, even though I, I read that now and I'm like... <laughs> It was impressive enough to get me a full scholarship to school because I was 17 or whatever. And it it was kind of adult, that was pretty, you know, adult writing for a 17 year old. But, you know, it was things I hadn't experienced, but that I had been experiencing through films. And I kind of made my own story about a woman who was, uh, oh, yeah, the other film that was inspired this was Looking for Mr. Goodbar. Diane Keaton, you know, that that whole era where it was like these women who were lost and they couldn't find the right partners and they were in New York City and it was this whole sort of thing. And it was like, I was just, you know, so I wrote a film about a woman who was a young woman who was searching for love, basically. And it didn't have a happy ending. But I had in mind this whole soundtrack of songs that I would use, like Rolling Stone Shattered, and I had some other songs with different things like I had written in the screenplay, you know, this song would play here and this song would play there. But the the love theme, if I had ever made this movie, was by The Fifth Dimension. And I thought I had, oh yeah, I do. (laughs) This one I have on a 45. (laughs) Still has the (laughs) ring in it. It's hours till dawn. This song was called If I Could Reach You. Apparently it was the last song that they ever released that charted top 10. I think it charted at number 10 and it went to number one on the easy listening chart. But it was the last hit that the Fifth Dimension ever had. And this song to me was perfect theme 
that would have been for my movie. So that's why I chose this one, just as a, as a spin. If I ever had directed that film and made that film, this song would have been the love thing. It would have been the I'm easy of, of this film about a, a woman struggling to find love in the big city. <laughs> Fifth Dimension, and If I Could Reach You, a song that would have been in a film written by Gail Ann Dorsey. Thanks again to Gail for creating this eight-song soundtrack. Next week, journalist Anthony Mason will be your guest DJ. A-Track is engineered by Jim O'Hara and produced by Sarah Wardrop, with theme music by Caroline Rose. Subscribe, listen, and learn more at 8trackpod.com. I'm Russ Boris for WFUV in New York.